Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, I don't know how to break this to you, but Jesus was not born on December 25th. (laughs) And I'm going to give you the reasons why. Now, before I go any further, I have to give credit for what I'm about to give to you. Um, And uh, last Sunday, Judy and I were in uh, Calvary Chapel, Tri-City. John Higgins is, um, he goes way, way back to the early Jesus movement. And uh, he laid out, him and another pastor were out for lunch discussing the birth of Christ. And they started stumbling across patterns. And so what they did is they took out a napkin and they started doing some math and doing some research from memory, from scriptures, and they actually came up when Jesus was really born. Now, I can't give you the exact date because more than likely it landed on one of the feasts that take place in September and October. I'm talking about Yom Kippur and um, Rosh Hashanah. So with that being said, we're going to do a a brief little verse-by-verse study of how they came up with this conclusion. And really, um, I said, John, after the study, I said, I never heard that before, and it blew my mind. Can I steal it? (laughs) And he said, absolutely. So I had him text uh, what I'm about to share with you. And with that being said, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter... One, and look at verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So here we have um, the birth of Christ informing us that it would be divine. And uh, from here, I would like to take you to the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, and draw your attention to verses 26, and we'll read through 38. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting is this. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I've never known a man? 
And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son born in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the handmaiden, servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Go back to verse 36, because it gives us a hint at this particular point. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month uh, for her who was called barren. So basically, Mary's visiting Elizabeth, um, and at this point, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And this is what got John and his other friends thinking. Why give us this information? Why do we need to know she was six months um, pregnant? Well, God gave to King David um, a set of courses of the priesthood duties. Of course, it was Moses, and then it was Aaron. Aaron became the first high priest, and um, all the priests from that time forward were Levites. And he also gave them certain duties. They had certain responsibilities that they would work, but they would work in a rotating type basis because there were many Levites. With that, I would like you to turn back with me to First Chronicles chapter 24. First Chronicles 24. Let me draw your attention to, um, see if I want to read more than that. Basically what we have here in the first verse, now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. So Aaron would have been the first high priest. And then it's going to go into a list of them. Um, they will have offices. And we're told, well, let's pick it up in... 24.4, and I'm actually going to read 4 through 8, so you get the feel for this here. Now, there were more leaders found of the house of Eleazar than the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided among the sons of Eleazar. There were 16 heads of their father's house and, and eight heads of their father's house among the sons of Ithamar. Thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for they were officials of the sanctuary and the officials of the house of God from the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar. And the scribes, it goes out and lists them, and it brings us down to uh, this verse, um, the sons of Nathaniel, one of the Levites, uh, wrote them down before the king. The leader, Zadok, the priest, Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, and the heads of the father's house of the priests, the Levites, one father's house 
taken from Eleazar and one from Ithamar. Now the first lot fell to Jehoram, the son of Jediah, uh, the third to Haram, the son of uh, Seorim, the fifth to Melchijah, the sixth to Mijamin. Uh, now this is the verse I wanted to get to here. Now the seventh to Hecox, uh, and the eighth to Abijah. Now remember that one right there. The eighth one is Abijah. So what do we have here? A bunch of Levites. They're divided into lots. Their job is to be taking care of the temple and uh, what went on on a daily basis uh, in the temple. All right, turn with me to Luke chapter one, verse five. We're sort of putting a puzzle together here. One verse five tells us, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of who? Abijah. So uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, this is um, his lineage. His wife was the daughter of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. As they were taking turns Um, each Levite would have a two-week stay to do his duties. So if you were a Levite, there would be this rotation basis set up, and after two weeks, you rotated out, and somebody else rotated back in. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, the number of courses that were set up um, were 24. They started at... Uh, at Passover, and that changes. Passover uh, uh, can be different. Easter can be different every year. It's not always on the same day, either late March or early April. Now, in their research on a napkin at a restaurant, (laughs) Zacharias was of the eighth course. That would be 16 weeks into the system. And I thought, I'm writing all this out, and all I have to really do is take out my, my phone here, and um, what comes up is March 15th. Okay, this would be uh, March 15th through July 15th would be 16 weeks. The angel Gabriel announced to Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would be with child, John the Baptist, Elizabeth was six months along when Gabriel appeared to Mary. That would be January 15th. Nine months um, added to January 15th is September 15th. These are flexible dates, but this information puts the birth of Jesus to be somewhere in mid-September. What's your point, Dwight? Jesus was not born on December 25th. And these two guys, in their spare time, did the math, and they say we can't tell you when the exact date was, um, but it was somewhere during, and in talking to John about this, and I said, well, what's your take on it? He says, well, that's when the feasts are. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and 
Um, Rosh Hashanah is, a, is a, the blowing of the shofar. And it's a joyful uh, new year and everybody's happy and rejoicing. And so John's personal conviction is that Jesus was actually born on Rosh Hashanah. Um, so now that we got that straight, Bible study's over and you can all go home and celebrate because it's not Christmas Eve after all. <laughs> all right. Enough of an introduction. Matthew chapter one, uh, verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Um, we have prophecies here. In these verses that I'm gonna read in this chapter, we have three prophecies that pertain um, to the coming of our Lord. And there's misunderstanding of these wise men um, that came uh, the night, because how many times have we seen a major manger scene and you see the, the three kings in, in the background along with their camels and so on and so forth. Uh, that this was not the case at all. Because here it clearly says um, that we're going to read that Jesus was born in a manger. If you look over at verse 11, it says, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary. We're not in a manger. We're in a house. And some period of time has got to have gotten by. They've moved. No room in the inn, remember? Only place was a manger. But when the wise men show up, it wasn't the night that Jesus was born. And this is a misunderstanding that many people have. It is some time later, we don't know how long, but it couldn't be more than two years. And I'll explain that later when we get to our last prophecy in uh, the study here tonight. The second misunderstanding here, we have in verse... Um, Well, let me read up to verse um, 11. Uh, And they came saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We'll come back to that. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, the scribes, the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for as it is written uh, by the prophet, uh, are not you least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined for them what time the star appeared. When did you guys see this? How long have you been following it? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. Let's just um, stop there. And the second misunderstanding that we have about uh, the kings 
is actually the number of them. It is inferred and it is implied um, that there were three of them because of verse 11 where it says that when they had come into the house and they saw the young child with Mary, they fell down and worshiped him and they opened their gifts and treasures and presented them to him. They gave him gold, they gave him frankincense, and they gave him myrrh. And we inferred that there were three kings, songs are written about it and so on and so forth. Um, But these are just, gold would represent his kingship, Uh, the frankincense, his priesthood, he was both a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it also says myrrh was one of them. Um, These men from the east probably were magi. We get the word uh, magi from the word magic. And the fact that they came from the east and they knew where to go, what to look for, and roughly the time. The question is, how would they know those, those things? The other thing in here is there's not just three of them. If you have three guys coming into Jerusalem on camels, let's say they have a couple extra camels with them, you know, just for their food supply and so forth. If you go back to verse three, it says all Jerusalem was troubled. You don't get troubled over three camels driving into town. You would be troubled if, if it was a whole entourage and it actually might pose a threat. What do you guys want? What are you up to? What's going on here? Questions like that, and they would be troubled in heart and spirit. Herod was troubled. He's the king. But it also said all of Jerusalem was. My point here is there were probably a whole lot more than three. We might even be talking an army coming in to town along with them. Turn with me to Daniel chapter two. As my Bible just flips right open to it, thank you. And I want to draw your attention to verse 27. Um, Daniel 2 is, of course, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the king asks Daniel if he's able to make known the dream to him. And in verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, uh, this secret which the king has demanded. Oh, I'm going to read into this sort of a sarcastic tone. Uh, What about the wise men? What about the astrologers? What about the word here for for magicians? Magic is where we get the word magi from. And the soothsayers, can't they declare the the thing to the king? And so he's sort of uh, jabbing them. And there's definitely sarcasm here. What about your magi? Why couldn't they tell you these things? But he goes on to say, uh, but there is a God in heaven. And he made the dream that you dreamed. He showed it to me. And that's the only reason I can't take any credit for this. God showed the dream to me. I take you there because I want to point out that as a result of Daniel just nailing this dream, 
what he dreamed. Head of gold, chest of silver, this image that he saw. And he was saying, you're the head of gold. And as I can just see Nebuchadnezzar just jaw dropped because Daniel's just nailing everything that he had in this dream. And if you look at verse 40, the last sentence, the last thing Daniel says to him, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now notice what happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that he should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel promoted his three friends. He becomes the second most powerful man in the world. And who is he boss and ruler over? The Magi. So from this point on, who's calling the shots? Well, it's Daniel. And uh, who he is instructing, these guys couldn't come up this list in verse 27, the soothsayers, astrologers, the magi. They couldn't do it. But all of a sudden now, who's their boss? Daniel was given a title of this time. In Hebrew, it's rab for chief, where he's the chief administrator down in verse 48. The word chief there is rab in the Hebrew um, of, of these wise men. Uh, and the wise men would be also interpreted magi. So what we have here, Daniel's title is chief of the magi. What's your point with all this? Well, these men taught by Daniel things about Remember Daniel too is about all the coming kingdoms and the kings that would reign. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar and then we talked about the Medes and the Persians and Darius and Cyrus. And then we went on to Alexander the Great, talked about him. Then we went on to the Roman Empire. So we're talking about kings. But now we're, he's teaching them about a king that's going to come whose kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. If you've been watching uh, the news, there's been speculation um, about the aligning of uh, two of our planets, and they're calling it the Christmas star because they're converging right around now, and it's, it's a lot brighter. And if you're asking me, Dwight, do you think that was uh, the Christmas star? My answer is no. <laughs> uh, as we read earlier, is anything too impossible for God? So if you're in, in uh, Numbers 24, I'm going just to read verse 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And the cross-reference there is Matthew 1, verse 2. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the 
the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumach. What do we know about Daniel? He was very, very serious about the book that I'm holding in my hand. The first verse of Daniel chapter nine, verse one said, I, Daniel, understood that 70 years is determined upon Israel because he was reading the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, you guys are gonna be here for 70 years. And my point is, he was a student and he knew the word of God well. And he knew Numbers 24, 17 about this, I will see him but not now, behold him but not near. A scepter shall rise out of his hand. A star shall come out of Jacob. He's the teacher of the Magi. And I believe the way, let's go back to, um, uh, let's, this would be a good place to go to. Let's go to Micah real quick on our way back. Micah chapter five, I'll give you a little bit time to get there. Uh, it's right after Jonah, and it's right before Nahum. I'm going to read four verses, but I'd like you to read them, uh, have you read them with me. So Micah chapter five, looking at the first four verses. And remember, one of the things as we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse, I make the point often that you can read one verse and then you'll have a gap in time. And um, this is a consistent way of just going through the scriptures. And this is the case here in these four verses. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall strike uh, the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Well, obviously that's a prophecy when they were beating the Lord. But you, Bethlehem, Euphrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. The wise men come into town. We're looking for the king of the Jews. Where is he? What amazes me is they knew. They knew Micah chapter five, and they quoted it. It was a prophecy and it was being fulfilled in front of the wise men. And it comes from this verse here. This verse is a prophecy. Verse three, so we have, we have the beating of Jesus, then we have his birth. The rejection is in verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now his deeds in verse four. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord of God, and they shall abide. From now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall bring peace. He did bring peace, but he also bought division. He often said, don't think that I've come to bring peace. And yet we read, what did the angels say? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We're gonna blow that to pieces on Sunday. I guarantee it. Where else doesn't he bring peace? Well, 
Don't think that I've come to bring peace because in your own house, your own family members, there will be father who will be against his son or a mother who will be against his daughter for no other reason than the father witnessing to the son wanting him to become a believer. And the son said, I believe in relativism. It's relative. Believe what you want to. It doesn't matter. And um, the father will say, well, you know, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. So now it all comes down to whether or not you can trust this book. One of the reasons we have these three prophecies in this one chapter is prophecy validates the authority of the Bible because only God can tell you something that's going to happen before it happens. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Only God can tell you something that's going to happen before it happens. There are 300 prophecies just about his first coming. You know how many of those came true? 300 of them, not one. I mean, if one didn't come out, go ahead. You have grounds to throw it away. But if you have any intellectual integrity in, in probability factors and mathematics, you gotta be, use your common sense now. And um, those kind of odds you don't wanna bet against. Amen on that one? So the validity of why there's division is because we've been, this is, generation has been raised in such a way that they've gotten away from the solid rock of the word of God. And they've gotten into this relativism. And what's, if it feels good, do it. Quote from the 60s. And uh, rather, we see the decline of our country right now because we've gotten away from our Judean Christian principles. And a good place for an amen. And that's why we're in the, uh, kind of the place that we are in our world right now and why this coming election is very, very, very important. Just a little sidetrack. This is in my notes. But I want to tell you something about President Trump. Have you noticed um, his language has changed? (laughs) I know people, I know, uh, I have pastor friends who meet with him on on a monthly basis. He went from coming into the office as a businessman. He's not a politician. He can't be bought. And he came in with a very, let's use the word, colorful background. Okay? And little by little by little, he's becoming a godly man. He's what I call a baby Christian. But don't think for a second he isn't growing, and don't think for a second he isn't asking questions during these Bible studies. And um, we really do need uh, to pray for him. I think he's a man who, when he hears truth, gets it. I think he can see through people like you wouldn't believe. And I think he's always probably five or six or seven steps ahead of whoever his adversary is. So just a a word about him. He does need our prayer. He openly talked about the necessity of God, and then he said, my Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody else hear that besides me? My Lord Jesus Christ. Not an indifferent God, pie in the sky, sort of, Mighty, the big guy upstairs, whatever. No, my Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a long way from when he first came into 
um, into the White House. But here is this prophecy, uh, Micah 5, they knew it. It bothered Herod, but for a different reason, because he's supposed to be king of the Jews. Everybody with me on that? But everybody else was troubled as they looked at the entourage that was there. All right, let's go back to um, Matthew. The third prophecy, um, 7 through 12, we were told that they worshiped, they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it's interesting that when the Lord does return, according to the book of Zechariah, that you have to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And when you come to the Feast of Tabernacles, you have to bring gifts. Two of them are mentioned. Gold is mentioned as kingship, and frankincense is mentioned, but not myrrh. Myrrh's left out of the list. Why would myrrh be left out of the list? Myrrh was used for embalming a dead body. So he's risen from the dead, he's alive and well, and he's ruling over the entire world in Zechariah chapter 14. So when we read here, they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is omitted during the gifts during the millennial reign. Um, Then them being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed their own way to another country. Um, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young Christ and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So here we have another prophecy. And I quote it. Um, The Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's Hosea chapter 11, verse one, if you're taking notes. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all districts from two years old and under. Do you see the time frame difference from the manger now to the house? So he's looking, it could have been up to two years. So Herod wants to kill every male baby that's two years and younger, and does so, unless Joseph was warned to get out of Dodge before this happened. Now, then there's one more prophecy, verse seven. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Imagine losing your two-year-old to murder nonetheless, all of them in Bethlehem. But it, that, this also was foretold. And that's pretty much um, um, the birth of Christ. 
as um, we get ready to go home and um, talk about how weird the world is and gee, I hope I get what I want for Christmas. All right, I was gonna tell a story, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. I hinted for a year when we were maybe ninth, 10th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. For a whole year, I wanted a set of golf clubs for Christmas. Hint here, hint there, and so on and so forth. And um, you know the routine when you're that age. Everybody gets in a car and dad says, oh, forgot the car keys, be right back. So while he forgot the car keys, what he's really doing is unloading all the presents, which we already knew where they were anyway. And um, he's stuffing a tree. Then after about five minutes of this going on, she goes, you're dad. You you kids stay in the car, and I'm going to go in and help him find his keys, and I'll be right back. So the whole thing is a scam. They're they're putting the presents underneath the tree, and we know it. And I'm thinking, I sure hope there's some golf clubs in there. So back then, we went to church, but um, I didn't know the Lord. Uh, I'm sitting listening to the preacher preach on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm thinking golf clubs. <laughs> and when are we getting out of here anyway? So we finally get home, and I'm looking and looking and looking. It's sort of like um, Ralph's rifle. <laughs> And um, sure enough, all the presents were opened and no golf clubs. And Dad said, well, everybody get what you want. I tried to be big about it and tried to put a smile on my face and go, yep, sure did. Really? Well, there is one more present for you that's in the dining room closet in there. So I go in and I open the door and sure enough, there they were, my set of golf clubs. So, gifts. We think about giving gifts as we go home tonight. We talk about family and friends and what a crazy world that we're living in. So, I would like you to turn to, as we close for a final verse, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and just set the record straight about gifts. And I want to put it in the form of a question. And my closing question is this. Have you ever ever received the greatest gift that has ever been given? This is the most important question you will ever have to answer in your life. As far as God is concerned, everybody watching live stream, everybody that's here for the service is a level playing field. What do you mean by that? Well, the Bible says all have sinned. You know what the word all means in the Hebrew? All. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or there might be some people that might be nicer than other people. That's possible. But that doesn't mean you're perfect. And you have to be in order to go to heaven. God's holy. He had to turn away when the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus on Calvary's cross. He was abandoned. Jesus Christ was abandoned because God is holy. When Jesus came, he says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. And that's not just the 10 commandments. There's 613 of them. 
Don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to be the spotless Passover lamb that was inspected. It could have no blemishes whatsoever. And Pilate, after examining Jesus four times, says four times, I can't find any fault with him. Why do you want to kill him? Because that's the reason he came into the world. So if it's clear that we're all on the same playing field, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, let's close with these verses on this Christmas Eve 2020, verse one of chapter two of Ephesians. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Here's this big word, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up by together with him, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a what of God? It is a gift of God, giving us Jesus Christ. But you don't have to take it, just like you don't have to take any gift. Lest it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Works do not save us. The disciples came to Jesus and said, what good work could I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus looked at them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And when you open your heart to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, Everything that's being said tonight makes sense. It rings true. I know who I am deep down inside. And I know that I'm not good enough if um, the goal is perfection. I know I'm not that. Know that what Jesus did on the cross was turn everything upside down. He took your sin. He took my sin. But that's not all. He gave me his righteousness in exchange. He took the sin, but he gave me his righteousness. So as far as God is concerned, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, and I pray this Christmas Eve service 2020 might be one of those moments with everything being shaken up. Hopefully it's shaken some people up to go, maybe I'm missing something here. And I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. And I can do that because I'm left out of the equation because he 
did it all. Oh, he does ask you to do one thing. Ever have somebody ask you the question, I wonder what the will of God is for my life? Ever wonder that? The Bible answers it. It says, this is the will of God, that you give sacrifice, uh, the, the the, the uh, gift of sacrifice of praise to him. Remember when you first fell in love? Remember all those nice love songs that you played for your sweetie? Well, that's what gratitude is all about. You're so grateful knowing that you can't do it and that he did do it that should produce this warmth of love that fulfills the only commandment he wants you to keep. He says, what's the first and greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might. That's all he wants you to do. Oh, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. He added that to it. You go, that's it? That's it. The closing question is, how can you love somebody unless she's really done something to perpetuate that love and give it back to him. The best way to do it is in a love song. That's why singing is such an important part of what we do here at Calvary. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, it's as simple as asking him uh, to come into your life and to forgive you of your sins, and then pick up this book. I'd suggest starting in the Gospel of John, and keep reading until you get to Revelation. And when you get done with that, start all over again. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Let's stand up and we'll close the word of prayer. Lord, people all over the world are commemorating and celebrating your coming into this world, declaring that you were indeed the Messiah. Angels rejoiced. And Lord, as we close up this evening, we know December 25th isn't Christmas. But doesn't really matter because you you have called us to love you on a daily basis, not just once or twice a year. And so I pray for any, Lord, um, for the, the word tugging or wooing at people's hearts tonight that have never received you as their Lord and Savior. I pray you'd touch them in a special way. And I pray them that you would give them the greatest gift that could ever be given, the gift of eternal life and becoming children of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.